I do have to tell you my Charles and Thorpe story. Hey everybody, I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. It is, what is today? Wednesday, the 24th of May. And I'm Kimberly Adams. This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, the day when we answer your questions uh, that come from our listeners, that come from social media, and all the various ways that people like to share their thoughts and feelings and desire. Anyway, if you have a question you want us to answer, you can leave us a voice. <laughs> I don't know where I went there. We're off to some kind of start. I don't even know. <sighs> okay. All if right. you have a question you'd like us to answer, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART or email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. Dale in North Carolina has the honor of today's first question. Here is what that email says. It seems like I'm hearing about AI being used in more and more places. So far, I've not heard about AI being used for stock or bond market prediction. Is anybody using AI like that? Ms. Adams. Yes, they are, and actually have been for some time. Uh, investors have been using algorithms and various types of artificial intelligence systems for stock market pur purposes and research and uh, sometimes even picking stocks way before this latest wave of AI. In particular, what's been getting a lot of attention is this generative large language model AI that, that is like the chat GPT and everything like that. But now those tools are getting even more popular, mainly because they're better. Uh, Marketplace Tech recently reported on how people are using ChatGPT for picking stocks. Um, however, <laughs> be cautious there. Uh, the senior analyst at The Motley Fool, who Megan McCurdy Carino was talking to, said that their poll of 2,000 Americans showed that 47% of those surveyed had already used that chatbot for stock recommendations. So whether mm -hmm. that's maybe putting in a prompt like, what's the best stock pick for agriculture stocks? Or how is Microsoft stock, you know, projected to do in the future. Something like that are questions that you can pose to ChatGPT. Uh, in, also in that poll, 77% of high-income respondents said they'd used ChatGPT for investing. Men were more comfortable relying on the bot for stock tips, uh, which, you know, you can say whatever you want about that. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. ChatGPT can make stuff up, so be cautious. It is not it, it can sound really smart as a market predictor, but it can hallucinate. Any of these large language models can hallucinate <laughs> and just like that's, spit that's out things really that are completely false. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, like. It's a really good word you, for it. Hallucinate? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. really good because it seemingly comes out of nowhere and you're like, where did that come from? And AI goes, I don't know, right? That's kind of what it is. Yeah, this is. I'm not. I'm not going to take credit for it, and and I know that it's been kicking around for a while with a lot of the researchers calling it hallucinations and things like that. But and in addition, like also when you think about these models, the data sets are limited. You know, even though they are large data sets, sometimes it only goes up to a particular point in time. Sometimes it excludes certain information, and they can't evaluate that information the way that a human being does with a healthy mm -hmm. level of skepticism. So even though we're not in the business here of picking stocks, if you were to ask us how a particular company is doing, we're not just going to weigh what the company says in its press releases and what articles have been written about them. We're probably going to do some pull in some other information that not, might not be quite so obvious to fully inform 
our picture of how that company is doing. So, you know, this Motley Fool analyst that uh, Megan was talking to said that while ChatGPT might be able to read a bunch of earnings reports, it can't watch a video of a CEO and, you know, get a sense that they're avoiding a question or looking nervous mm -hmm. or saying something super inappropriate about people who work from home that may affect, you know, their ability to hire in the future. So, yes, mm -hmm. you can definitely ask uh, these AI chatbots about stocks and picking stocks. And the other versions of AI have been used for this purpose for quite some time. But, you know, just be, be cautious with that. Yeah. And, and consult your own sentient financial advisor. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> right? I mean, you know. Nicely done. That's what I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, and also, you know, what if people think that the AI is sentient, Kai? Yeah, that's a whole, yeah. Yeah, it could All happen. Right. It will All happen right. one day, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm not going there. All right, next question is from Ray in California. Here's what it says. I recently traveled to Ecuador and found out that they use the U.S. dollar as their official currency, meaning that they do not have an Ecuadorian-specific currency. How does this work? Are there other countries that use the U.S. dollar as their official currency? Yeah, there are. So this is what's called dollarization, and it is not, uh, it's not incredibly common, but it's not unheard of either. There are uh, 11 foreign countries that use the U.S. dollar as their currency, and they do that by saying, the U.S. dollar is our currency and making that a law there. Uh, and it's countries like Ecuador, El Salvador. El Salvador, by the way, also accepts Bitcoin as legal tender, so that's a whole different thing. Um, Panama, Zimbabwe, uh, name a couple. Here are the statistics, and thank you, Courtney, for this. As of 2020, 50 billion notes of various denominations of U.S. currency circulating outside the United States. Total value, $1 trillion. So why would countries do this? Well, number one, the U.S. dollar is... For now, he says, as we look at a debt crisis, debt limit crisis, uh, <laughs> stable. The U.S. I'm sorry, I, I'm mixing my news stories. The U.S. dollar is stable, right? It is the most stable and relied upon and reserved currency in the world, right? Everybody wants U.S. dollars, so it's an incredibly liquid currency, right? As opposed to say the Chinese yuan, which is which is not incredibly liquid. Okay, so if you are in a country with financial troubles, you want a, a stable and liquid currency, you go to the U.S. dollar. The other reason you might do that is that you want to be involved in international trade and whatever your currency might be, because you're a smaller, perhaps less globally involved uh, country, your currency might not be good for that. And so you go to the U.S. dollar, which is, of course, so much global trade is denominated in U.S. dollars. I'll give you just one example. Oil is denominated in dollars, right? Um, so mm -hmm. that can help. But the problem is that you cannot, as El Salvador or Zimbabwe, crank up the printing press and print U.S. dollars. Well, I, I suppose you could, but then they would be counterfeit U.S. dollars. But if you want the genuine article, you have to get them from the Federal Reserve, right? Which means you know to, need to go to the Fed. You need to either open up a swap line with the Fed, which is where the Federal Reserve literally opens it up and says, give us some kind of collateral, whether it's gold, whether it's your national debt, your securities, whatever, we'll hold on to that and we'll give you these dollars. We'll swap them out. Or you go out and you buy them uh, with other dollars, on foreign exchange markets, right? Because the dollar is a traded currency. There are times when it's low and there are times when it's high. So if you've got dollar, dollars that you bought uh, at one value and you need dollars of another value uh, in the market, you can go ahead and do that. Um, it's, it's a real challenge though, not being able to control your own currency. And I will refer you only to the Greek debt crisis of 2015 mm. when the Greeks got into a whole bunch of trouble, but yeah. 
drachmas aren't legal currency anymore. They are on the euro and they don't control the euro. The European Central Bank does. And so that was a real challenge for Greece. And it got faced with a bunch of austerity budgets because the Europeans in return, the Northern Europeans rather, in return for bailing out the Greeks in 2015 said, well, you need to spend less money. And that's the only way we're going to give you these euros that we control out of our central bank. So it's, it's uh, helpful but it's not um, without its challenges. But it happens, happens not infrequently. It's called dollarization. And thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Nicely done. There we go. All right. Uh, so next question, it's, uh, it's actually on tape. Here you go. My name is Matt Colin from Long Beach, California. When I go to the store and grab a bottle of juice or a can of soda, the nutritional information is printed on the side nice and big. But when I'm counting my calories and I'm trying to decide between my ale and my rum, no clue. <laughs> How did the alcohol industry get out of letting us know what's in their drinks? Such a good question. Thanks. Such a good uh, question. Too long, don't read. It's really bad for you. <laughs> How about that? Uh, okay. The short answer, I know that was a very short answer, but the shorter, well, longer, but still short answer, is that alcoholic beverages are regulated by the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, which is not the FDA. And those labels that you see on your food and your medicines and everything like that are FDA labels, right? So when FDA mandated food and nutrition labels in the 90s, it didn't apply to alcohol. And the history of how this happened, it has to do with the prohibition. So after prohibition ended in 1933, Congress passed the Alcohol Administration Act, which, which created an early version of the Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, TTB, right? Okay, so the government decided then to regulate alcohol separately from food so that it could generate more tax revenue off of it. So hmm. labeling things like calories and carbs is optional for most alcoholic drinks, but there are some labeling requirements. So bottles of distilled liquor need a label that shows the alcohol percentage. Same thing for wine that has more than 14% alcohol. So those like real fortified wine, shall we say. And for a long time, <laughs> consumer groups have <laughs> pushed for nutrition labeling on alcoholic beverages. And they say that, you know, people should know how much these drinks impact their daily caloric intake a lot. Lots of calories in booze, mm. FYI. But all the attempts have been snuffed out very successfully by the alcohol industry. And the TTB has said nutrition labeling might actually deceive consumers into thinking that alcohol has a, you know, positive nutritional value. Because remember, calories are the energy that you need to burn to, for food to keep yourself alive, you know, not burn for food, mm -hmm. but, you know, burn to keep yourself going. And yes, you can get those calories from alcohol, but it's definitely not the best way to get them. Um, however, in 2004, the TTB did decide that if beers are advertised as low carb, that they do need a nutrition label to support the claim. And I will just put out there that the latest research says there's no amount of alcohol that mm -hmm. is good for you, regardless of what the label says. So mm -hmm. there's that. Mm -hmm. There you go. Forget those oh. glasses of red wine that, you know, in the 1980s, everybody was like, oh, yeah, one glass of red wine is really good for you every day. It's good for Not your so. heart. No. <laughs> That's right. Not so. All right. Last question of the day, also on tape. Hi, this is Steve in St. Paul, and I was wondering if you could explain the meaning and origin of the term knock-on effect. Thanks. Wow. Hmm. 
Okay. Interesting. Uh, I cannot, but Courtney Bergseeker can because she's the one who did the research <laughs> on this piece. She called uh, an actual uh, linguist and etymologist named Anatoly Lieberman uh, at the University of Minnesota. And here's what he says. As with most phrases, don't know exactly where knock-on effect comes from, right? It's the idea, by the way, that one action or event has a secondary or indirect consequence, a knock-on effect, right? Uh, so, phrase appears to be relatively new, uh, Professor Lieberman says, first appeared in written form in 1972 in the British newspaper The Times, which is interesting. Here's the quote. They would, they would be more than willing to move toward a minimum wage of about 20 pounds a week if they could be assured that there would be no knock-on effect in the differentials demanded by the rest of the labor force. So, the secondary or indirect effect. Lieberman says most likely the phrase was first used in physics where knock-on is often used to talk about the effects of particles colliding with one another. Eventually, by the way, made it into sports. It's popular in rugby, turns out, and as such, became more widely used. Became part of the vernacular. There you go. Learn something new every day on this podcast. Every Every day. day. Every day. Every day. Uh, And that is it for today. No more learning for today. Back tomorrow. If you've got a question or anything else related to the economy or business and technology, let us know. 508-UB-SMART. Email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. We'll answer both the phone and the email. Well, maybe not answer, but we'll put it on the pod. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. We will process the information. There you go. That's right. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker, who provides all that lovely research for us. Ellen mm-hmm. Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonia Barreras, and today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe, who gives us a hard time. Every time. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Mercy Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital and On Demand. I was wondering I, if you were going to do I it. Will die, I will die on this hill. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.